Welcome to Perspectives in Sickle Cell Disease, a podcast that brings together people living with sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait, with specialist hematologists to exchange experiences and bring clinical guidelines to life. In this closing discussion, Dr. Joe Howard and Professor Leon Chilolo reflect on what they have learned from their conversations with people affected by sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait, and discuss the present and future of sickle cell disease treatment across the world. Hello, my name is Mandy Wattie-Miller and I was diagnosed with sickle cell trait at the age of 25. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Joe Howard and Professor Leon Chilolo to the podcast. Hi, I'm Joe Howard. I'm an adult hematologist looking after patients with sickle cell disease in, in London. Hi, I'm uh, Leon Chilolo. I'm a pediatrician hematologist. I'm working uh, in Kinshasa in DRC and I'm uh, particularly uh, dedicated to uh, sickle cell patients. So I guess my first question I'm going to ask is, what new insights into sickle cell disease did you gain from listening to the previous two podcasts? And I'll ask you first, Joe. It, it was really interesting to hear the patient's perspectives. And I thought some of the things in the interview that I did with Janine were really interesting. So she talked a lot about opiates and how she felt she'd had too many. And I thought she was really honest about that. And I think it, it, it was quite um, powerful uh, what she said. And I think she really made me think about my practice and what we do and how we should, obviously we need to treat pain really effectively, but we shouldn't over-treat pain either and getting that balance, how, how, how difficult it is and how important it is to have those conversations with patients about opiates and the, the long-term complications. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and then I love the discussion with the um the mother and daughter in in Leon's podcast who were I mean they were amazing I thought but they talked a lot about education of staff and that, and that's something that we hear all the time and I think it just really emphasizes how important it is to have better education of doctors and nurses um not specifically of hematologists but of all the doctors of the, the doctors in A&E and the doctors on the wards and the nurses on the wards and how important that is thank you that's great I mean Leon I'll ask you the same question what did you gain from listening to the previous two podcasts? Yes, it was very interesting for me to hear from uh, the mothers of sickle cell patients uh, what uh, she hopes and what she needs. Uh, I think that one of the main things I retain is the fact that they need to be listened. Patients and the families want to be listened by the physicians and uh, by the health workers. Another thing, they want to be partnership in the care of their uh, children and not only people who ask to, to do what the physician decided. I think it was a very good uh, podcast and I retained these two main lessons from them. Yeah, that definitely came across, wasn't it, that the patient voice needs to be heard and just in terms of their pain management as well. So that's just linking back to what you said, Joe. And going on to that is, what do you think are the most important takeaways from that, the previous episodes for both of you? If you had to just have one each, what would that be? I'd echo Leon's points really about, about working with the patients, educating our staff better so we can listen to the patients, I guess. I think it's the same thing, to listen patients more and more. What resources or information sources do you think are lacking for people with sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait? And I'm going to go to Leon this time. 
in many of the African countries, uh, the sickle cell patients are not uh, very well informed about the progress on the treatment and uh, the limitations of the progress because sometimes uh, they think that uh, they can definitely be cured if moved to Europe because they think that bone marrow is uh, the solution. Uh, if you have money, you can be definitively cured from the sickle cell disease. So they, they, they need to be well informed about realities, about progress, about limitations of care of sickle cell disease. And another thing is very important to know what are the possibilities of follow-up, possibilities of treatment and so on in the place where they are living is very important. There's, there's a lack of relationship between the different centers working uh, on uh, sickle cell disease because we have no constant communication between different uh, physicians and between different health centers. So I mean to say that sometimes we can have a center who is really well dedicated on blood transfusion, but uh, the neighboring centers don't know that they can have good blood uh, transfusion in uh, another center. I think that's very important to share the good information between the different practitioners and different health centers. Thank you for that. Joe, what resources or information sources do you think are lacking for people with sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait? Yeah, no, it's not about what's lacking. And it's also, I think, a little bit about misinformation. And that came out in Leon's podcast. So there's quite a lot about where people get their information from. So in the UK, the Sickle Cell Society, our kind of national patient organisation, have really great information on their website. And that's been, you know, re reviewed medically. It's very accurate. But people don't always go to that for their kind of information sources. And what they do is they ask their friends or they look on social media a lot. And I think that is concerning. So there's a lot of myths, for example, about hydroxyurea, hydroxycarbamide, really effective drugs, but a lot of patients very, very resistant to using it because of things they've read or something someone told them, which aren't necessarily true. And that worries me that that's where people get their information from. The same with COVID. I mean, a lot of really quite dangerous misinformation out there. But how you signpost people to the right place or, or, or put the information in the kind of places that young people go. I mean, most of the, of the, the doctors like me, we're kind of old, we don't do all, that, do all that social media stuff. And it's quite difficult to get to patients, especially our young patients. I think information's changed so much over the last couple of decades that giving them a patient information leaflet like we used to do probably just doesn't do it anymore. So do you think it would be around a case of maybe educating people more on social media? Is that something that is a possibility or do you think people are still scared of it? I think we, we probably do need to engage better. I think I'm probably not the right person to do that. But, but, <laughs> but I think that is really important because I think that's where people, especially young people, go for their information now. And if the information out there isn't regulated or it isn't accurate, that doesn't kind of matter. They're not going to go to the places I might have gone to. So I think we do need to engage better. I, I don't know how, but I think we do. 
Um, Leon, did you have anything to add on top of what Joe's just said around the social media aspect of it? I think another thing I can add is uh, to involve the public media in this uh, misinformation. It's very important because people used to listen radio, TV, national TV, our national radio, and so on. If they are involved in this educational program, it would be a very good uh, factor. Absolutely. I think I definitely agree on that. So what do you think has changed in sickle cell disease referral area itself in the last five years? Well, in the last five years, we have got new things. I can say just a thing about the African countries because we introduced the anti-pneumococcal vaccines in the national vaccination programs. It's a new thing because now all the children that are born in most of the African countries are protected against pneumococcus and hemophilus. That's a new thing because all the sickle cell patients now can uh, access to these two vaccines. Another thing that's new in the last five years, I can say, of course, is the introduction of uh, Abuxrea in pilot studies in African countries. Now we know that it's not a dangerous uh, drug. We can use Abuxrea in a context like the tropical areas and so on without any more risk than when we use it in Europe. And we are using also Abuxrea where malaria is endemic, and uh, we observed good impact. And uh, what we have got also in the last five years is the interest in uh, research on uh, sickle cell disease. I'm very amazed to see that in many of the African universities, people is working on sickle cell disease. That's a very good sign that uh, sickle cell disease is a, a key disease for research now in many of the African countries. And I can also say that many of the African uh, actors are trying to get more contact between them. There's a more partnership between the African countries on sickle cell disease. Thank you. And Joe, the same question to you. What do you think has changed? I agree there's certainly been much more use of hydroxyurea, hydroxycarbamide. So that's now being offered to, to all children with um, severe sickle cell disease um, in this country, which I think is a real change. Um, and I think that will benefit the long-term outcomes for our children as they grow up. We've also obviously got the new drugs. So crisaluzumab was approved for use by NHSE three weeks ago now, which is pretty exciting. And we'll have that available early next year, I think. So that's a, you know, a, a once monthly infusion which treats pain, uh, a monoclonal antibody. That's quite exciting, very exciting, not quite exciting <laughs> to have that, that available. Um, and, and there are other drugs kind of going through approval at the moment, like Voxelator. So hopefully we may have that accessible by next year as well. And there are lots more drug trials going on. So I would just echo Leon's comment about research. I mean, really so much research now compared to what there was five years ago or 10 years ago, which is just fantastic to see that. And then the last thing about transplant, I guess, is that that's now been approved by NHSE uh, for adults. So we've been transplanting children with sickle cell disease with severe um, complications for, for many years, but we haven't been able to offer it to adults. 
two years ago, NHSE um, approved that for adults as well, but they will now fund that in the UK for certain patients, uh, certain adults with severe disease. So that's also fantastic. Um, it was a bit delayed by COVID, but those programmes are now starting. So that's pretty exciting. And then, of course, gene therapy, which is slowly developing, I guess, would be the best way of describing it. Um, and maybe that's something for the next five years rather than the last five years before it becomes really embedded in practice. Thank you. And I'm just going to skip ahead a second just to go back to COVID because obviously it did have a massive impact across the world. So I just wondered if you have, both of you have noticed any changes in the management of patients with sickle cell disease since the pandemic. And Joe, I'll come to you first. I mean, COVID certainly had a massive impact here. All the centres in England have worked together very closely and we've recorded, I think, all the cases. And we demonstrated that there was a very um, high increased risk of severe COVID symptoms and death from COVID in the sickle population. And we managed to get it included in the, the group that had to shield in the UK and in the group that's been prioritised for vaccination. The main difference really is apart from the impact it's had on our kind of inpatients and all the admissions we've had to hospital and all the patients who've had COVID have been very, very unwell with it. Um, it is that a lot of our outpatient consultations are now um, involving discussions about vaccinations. So I must talk about COVID vaccinations several times every single day until I feel like a broken record. So we know that about 65% of our adult population have been vaccinated. And although that's the same as the, the same ethnic group in kind of South London, I still don't feel that's very good for a, a population that's so vulnerable. So we, we're spending a huge amount of time trying to educate patients and talk to patients. We've done you know, Q&A sessions with patients, um, which are on the Sickle Cell website. One of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Cassie Ali, did those, sending out patient information and updating that regularly with all the figures. And that it has been a huge change to our practice, really, those continual conversations about vaccines. Um, and, and it's been really difficult. I mean, it's been awful <laughs> working and seeing so many patients being so unwell with COVID. It's just been the most awful couple of years, really. Um, and it continues because we're still seeing admissions almost entirely in, in the unvaccinated population. Um, and I, I find that incredibly frustrating, really, that there's something that we could prevent so easily. Um, and yet patients come in and they're putting themselves at risk. And they're also putting me and my staff at risk, actually. And I, and I feel upset by that. Thanks, Joe, for that. Before I jump into Leon... I just wanted to ask if there's any correlation or association between misinformation on COVID-19 and sickle cell disease. I don't think it's particularly related to sickle, to be honest. I think the misinformation is out there across all populations and probably our uptake in sickle patients is a, is a bit higher than in the general population. So the misinformation actually probably isn't sickle related, most of it. Um, and Patients have asked, oh, can I take the vaccine because the sickle is going to make things worse? But we have been able to reassure patients on those. Thank you. So, Leon, I'm going to ask you the same question. Have you noticed any changes in the management of patients with sickle cell disease since the pandemic? Yes, uh, during this uh, pandemic, we have got some difficulties and limitations because uh, of the limitations of movement of the patients. Most of them, they were not able to move from house to the hospitals. Another difficulties we have got was due to the fact that the cost of the transport was a little bit more excessive because of the negative impact of COVID 
on our financial and economic system. Sometimes we observe a lack of drugs in many of the pharmacists because it was very difficult to get the importation of uh, some drugs because many of the air companies were uh, Uh, limited and so on. So it was very difficult to have the usual uh, care of our sickle cell patients. But we have got in that uh, same period some uh, positive uh, impact because we developed more contact with our patients by WhatsApp, by telephones, and by internet. And uh, we have also... Uh, using that period as a good period to enhance the educational programs of the families on sickle cell disease. For example, we have uh, published a leaflet on the barriers that they have to respect because of COVID infections. We uh, disseminated these leaflets by uh, internet uh, and so on. We also took this opportunity to make some research on uh, the seroprevalence of COVID antibodies in our sickle cell patients. We were very surprised to note that 20 to 25% of our sickle cell patients have COVID antibodies. So I think that it was a period with uh, negative uh, impacts and positive also. Thank you. What are the biggest knowledge gaps among patients and healthcare professionals regarding sickle cell? And I'm going to open that first to Leon. Uh, I think is the, the health workers are more uh, educated, but sickle cell patients less. So this is one of the big gaps that we have uh, to reduce. Another one is uh, due to the fact that uh, the number of uh, sickle cell patients is uh, increasing, but people who is uh, able to take care of sickle cell patients is less because we have no many specialists on sickle cell disease. We have no many, for example, nurses. We are really dedicated to sickle cell disease because most of them are moving between different services in the hospital. And this is a a very, very limitation factor because uh, families and patients want to go to the same persons to keep this uh, relationship with the same health workers and not to change every month or every uh, quarter of uh, months. So I think that is one of the gap we have, I can say, between the sickle cell patients and uh, health workers in Africa. So when we was listening to the podcasts from Janine and Donya, what we found is, you know, one of the gaps is obviously the listening between the patients and the healthcare professionals. So obviously you're saying to us, there's a shortage of sickle cell experts now and the nurses are on rotation, so they're not there. Do you think there's any other gaps that could be filled in an ideal world? What would you think would be the best thing that we could help bring the patients and healthcare professionals together to try and fill those gaps? 
Yeah, one of the main gaps that we have uh, in many of the African countries is the financial support. Because as I, I said, for example, the newborn screening program or the early diagnosis program is not um, supported by the government. It's supported by NGO or by uh, private foundations and so on. And for me, this is one of the gap we have, for example, with the European countries, where these different programs are supported by uh, the government. Thank you. So, Joe, I'll ask you the same question. What do you think are the biggest knowledge gaps among patients and healthcare professionals regarding sickle cell? Well, I, I guess the first thing to talk about is pain management. This is kind of not really about the sickle specialist, but it's more about the generalists, about the emergency doctors, the ward nurses and doctors. And we see all the time patients coming in with pain and they're not being believed, they're not being treated quickly enough. And I think that's a massive knowledge gap and also relates back to listening to the patients. The patients come in, they say they're in pain and they're just not believed. People don't understand the severity of pain and how important it is to treat it. So I think that's a real big knowledge gap. And then the other thing, which is, is a bit different, really, is, is about the chronic complications of sickle cell disease. As our patients survive longer and grow up to adulthood and beyond, I mean, we certainly, I've got lots of patients now in their 50s and 60s, we don't really understand enough about the, the long-term natural history of sickle cell disease. So we don't know what's going to happen to those patients as doctors. So it's really hard to advise them because we haven't had these big cohorts of older patients. And as patients get older with sickle, they have lots of chronic complications. You know, they have heart problems, they have lung problems, they have problems with their brain, problems with their kidneys. And I think, A, we don't discuss that with patients, so they're not really aware of that. The other specialists aren't really aware of that. And, and the haematologists, the sickle specialists, don't really understand it because we've not studied it before. So I think that's something that we really need to research to find out more about so we can understand what's going to happen and so we can look at which treatments are going to help. So should patients be put on you know, hydroxycarbide? Is that going to help? Are the new treatments going to help these long-term complications? We just don't understand that. And then I guess the last thing is just about community education. So one of the things I think is really clear is, is that a lot of people in the community don't really understand sickle. So a lot of our patients have problems when they're trying to maybe in education or in their jobs because people aren't making enough, um, giving them enough help when they're applying for benefits, help with, with the housing, but because the community don't really understand as a whole. And if there was better education for social workers and benefits advisors, then a lot of the problems our patients face would be made much easier. Thank you. I know that certainly came across when Janine was talking about it in episode one as well. So on hearing both stories, was you surprised at all at the doctor's responses to pain management? And I'll go to you first, Joe. What do you mean the patients don't, the doctors don't take it seriously, nurses don't take it seriously? I think it was a mixture of not taking it seriously and also hearing from Donya again about her and her mother when they were talking about being in hospital and saying you, know, you could get the morphine per request, they was just coming in and actually just giving them the morphine on a regular basis. Yeah, no, I mean, those, those stories don't surprise me at all. I mean, we've spent years and years trying to educate people. It's just staff rotate so quickly outside a very, very highly specialist unit. And even on that, these kind of misconceptions about pain are, are really common. I'm saddened by those stories, but not surprised by them. Leon, I'll ask you the same question. Was yeah. you surprised at all? In uh, my country and in most of the African countries, 
the access to opioids is very, very limited. That means that pain is one of the biggest challenge we have because we use uh, the different drugs and um, health workers think that when they uh, give the drugs, they think that the patient has to feel better because they receive uh, some different drugs. And when the patient say, no, I have no good effect, sometimes they say, no, we are sure that she's uh, saying the truth, uh, probably she's uh, capricious and uh, that's not true. Because um, we have not uh, enough educated on the use of the opioid. That's one of the great challenge. Another thing, we have no psychological support, like in other countries. We have no psychologists in the medical staff. It's very rare to have a psychologist in the medical staff that can help, that can uh, talk with the patients and discuss with them. And we have another thing that due to the fact uh, in the African countries, when we have no solution with the modern medicine, people look at the traditional medicines. And sometimes we have a kind of conflict between the traditional medicine and modern medicine. I mean to say, sometimes you have the families, they say, with this herbal medicine, my daughter feel better. For us, it's a real challenge because we don't know. We have a high ignorance on the herbal medicine. And uh, sometimes we want to opposite the use of herbal medicine with the modern uh, medicine. And in, for example, in Paris, they have a, a traditional uh, practitioner in the modern hospital. I think that would be one of the best thing we can uh, add for many of the African countries because the traditional practitioners are also psychologists. And that is very important to add for the great challenge of uh, pain in Africa. Thank you, that kind of, that leads me on to my um, next question, which you answered some of it already around the biggest challenges for patients living with sickle cell disease in low income countries. I know when we spoke before, you talked about, for example, oxygen and things like that, things that we take for granted could be a challenge. So did you want to elaborate a bit more on that? Yes, uh, oxygen is not available in most of the hospital in Africa because of limitation of uh, production. For example, in the rural areas, a patient with a low value of uh, oxygen saturation will not um, benefit of oxygen. They will give him uh, drugs and so on. Meanwhile, what he really needs is to get more oxygen. So we, some uh, initiatives done by uh, some uh, foundations to, to give uh, a big concentrated uh, machine that can produce oxygen without uh, using uh, electrical supply 
but with a battery. I think that would be a very good thing. I would like to add another thing for pregnant sickle cell patients. They need oxygen during the last trimesters of uh, pregnancies because we observe that they feel better, not only the mother, but also the, the child feel better when in the last uh, three months of uh, pregnancy, we give them supplementary oxygen. So I think that oxygen is a real uh, challenge for many of the African countries because it's not uh, accessible. Thank you. And just before we come to the end of this podcast, I just wanted to ask, did Joe, did you have any questions for Leon or vice versa? I'd quite like to ask Leon about his experience of hydroxy urea, hydroxycarbide, because he's done a lot of work on that and how, how available it is and how many patients take it up in his practice. Unfortunately, hydroxyurea is not available for many patients. It's just available for those who are included uh, in a cohort, in a specific cohort, because the cost is very high. For 20 pills of 500 milligram, the cost is around 10 to $15. It's too expensive for people who is very poor in many of the African countries. Now, uh, fortunately, we have, and we hope that we will be able to access to Adiosurea because uh, Ash and Novartis are trying to make it accessible to many of the African countries. But at the moment, people can only have it if they're on the clinical trial, can they? Yeah, we can control that. Yes. Leon, did you have any questions for Joe? Yeah. What I would like to, to ask you, uh, you know that uh, we observe many alloimmunization because of the difference between uh, Caucasian donors and black patients. How do you manage these kind of problems of uh, uh, blood compatibility? Because we have many donors are white, uh, Caucasian, and most of our patients, your patients, I suppose, are Black uh, African patients. Yeah, no, it, it, it is a major problem. So we have a lot of patients, a, a, a kind of small number of patients who are, are virtually untransfusable because of multiple antibodies. So we do match more closely than we do for other patients. So we do CDE and KEL matching. So that means we just match for more blood groups. So they do get better blood. So that reduces the antibodies somewhat. We obviously try not to transfuse if we don't need to, but often we do. And we have a lot of patients on long-term transfusion. Those patients are the ones least likely to have problems because once we know they're okay with blood, they tend to go on. So there is a subset who, who just seem to have multiple antibodies. There is some really interesting research being done now with the, uh, the National Blood Service are working on genotyping. So hopefully in the next few years, we'll be able to genetically match more closely. But I think that's a few years away at the moment. But yeah, but at the moment, we just do more extended genotype matching with um, CDE and Cal. Well, thank you both. This has been very, very interesting. And um, I could talk to you for hours. So thank you, Joe. And thank you, Leo. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you very much, Mandy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
the Perspectives in Sickle Cell Disease podcast is a collaboration between Obsidian Healthcare Group, a global provider of medical education, and the European Hematology Association. If you're a healthcare professional looking for more education on sickle cell disease, visit the EHA campus at ehaweb.org forward slash education.